Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. We are back for the season finale. We're about five weeks behind schedule, but we made it. We made it, David. Oh, yeah, finally. <laughs> A little bumps in the road. A little. You almost died. I couldn't speak for two weeks. But uh, we're here. That's, that should be a sign of our dedication to Star Trek and the listeners out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right, David. So we have a lot on our plate today. We have the season finale of Strange New Worlds to discuss, and there is a lot to discuss. Yeah, what a season finale. You know, things like actual narrative aspects, then there are Easter eggs, then there are nostalgia moments, then proper there's... Proper Easter eggs, Mike. Proper, proper Easter eggs, you're proper right. Proper Easter eggs. Then we had Paul Wesley's Kirk make his appearance. Uh, Una... Being placed under arrest, which makes you wonder, is this actually what happened to her? Is this why she disappeared? And we literally had the, a legit Star Trek ending to a season, Mike, that ends with the to be continued. Did we if actually think have about a TV? It, it didn't say it. It didn't say it, but you get the feeling, oh, to be continued. During those final seconds, I was like, please just show it please say it and have uh what's her name roddenberry's wife uh, magel is that how you say oh her yeah name? magel robert uh, um I, I magel always... barrett roddenberry have her you know the voice use that voice apparently she recorded hours and hours and hours and hours of audio audio yep before she had died so use it i mean shit rip the one from tng era deep space nine and voyager you know to be continued Dude. Because that's what I was expecting, especially when Pike just looks down the barrel of the of the camera and all of a sudden it just cuts to black. And I'm like, going, you, you're waiting for to be continued. I would have pissed my pants if it said that. <laughs> and it was her voice. I, that would have made the entire episode. <laughs> that would have made the episode 100% for me. I'm like, okay, here it is. Finally, exactly. I haven't given an episode of Star Trek 100%. Uh, since the not that it hasn't been good i'm just i'm not free with 100 percent. I, I don't i don't just throw them around because i want them to mean something yes you're not me <laughs> wasn't gonna say that but yes even with 90 percent, that says a lot if i'm giving something above 94 95 percent which we have given numerous episodes that this season that says a lot too anywhere past 94% that says a lot coming from me because yeah. I'm very critical despite what some anti-Kurtzman era Star Trek fans may think which by the way David we received an email from a listener saying you know you guys don't really know Star Trek half as well as you think you do and then he <sighs> went on this whole diatribe about how and why 
And his reasoning was simply because Kurtzman error is not good. Okay. And then I just didn't care. <laughs> I just didn't care. Because if that's your argument that you don't like the Kurtzman era, I don't really that's care to not, listen to you. That, Cause that's not criticism. That's your own opinion. That's, that's not, a, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to get into that negativity, but I did laugh when I saw the emails like, all right. Although Mike, th- uh, we should tell them, thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> Leave us a review. Leave us a review. <laughs> All right. So, yes, we're going to be talking about season one, episode 10, Strange New Worlds, titled A Quality of Mercy. The synopsis in the season one finale, just as Captain Pike thinks he's figured out how to escape his fate, he's visited by his future self. It's that's so fucking Star Trek. That's such a Star Trek cliche. Oh, yeah. you know what? I don't want to say cliche. because That sounds bad. A Star Trek trope trope. It, no, no. I will say it's a Star Trek trope because isn't this what they did at Voyager too? Like, yeah, the ending of Voyager. Think about Janeway. Janeway, yeah, I, yeah. her future self went back in the past and saved her crew. <laughs> I, I'm done fighting time travel. I'm, I'm over it. Like, I, I know. I, I'm like, you know what? It's never going to stop. And as long as they do it well, fine. But think about this, though. If Pike altered the future, right? As we're supposed to believe. Yes. Or maybe he didn't alter the future. Well, at this point, he, he, he can't alter the future well, because he chose. Obviously, he did at some point because that's why old man Pike comes to visit him. Yes. But as we remember, you can't change the past. <laughs> so tactically, they created In another split. A, a split timeline. <laughs> exactly. Think about that. Have that burrow in your brain. Yeah. We, we could also be completely off, but based on what well, I'm going by information that they've given us. Yes. And it was pretty clear in Star Trek Discovery season three that you cannot change the past. I believe that's what the guardian of forever said. Yeah. What you do is you create a split. You create a split timeline. So in essence, old man Pike comes back to make sure that the prime timeline, that the prime stays, timeline stays, secure. stays secure. Yeah. Because his timeline's not going to change. And for all intents and purposes, from what they've alluded to in his timeline, it is worse than we get a spin off prime timeline. We get a spinoff of old man Pike fighting Romulans. Oh my God, dude, that'd be amazing. I Anson would watch Mount, the fuck out of that. Anson Mount in a series that is nothing but, you know, the, the Romulan war. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what was interesting about his uniform, old man Pike, that was completely modeled after the actual uniform that William Shatner wore in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan, yeah. I was watching the behind-the-scenes features of uh, some of the costuming, which is on point this season, and they specifically asked for William Shatner's uniform from Wrath of Khan, and the archivists or the people that keep these things under lock and key delivered it to them so they can study it and analyze it, and that's what Pike's entire uniform is based on. Because they have to still maintain some continuity in regards to look. It might look different. I mean, on obviously, all of Star Trek, the new Star Trek looks different than any of the other Star Trek films. But there's just that little, that little connection that makes you look at their costuming, look at their effects, look at their set design and say, okay, this is still reminiscent or rem- makes me remember prior, prior series. So I saw the same thing. I saw that uh, to be uh, behind the scenes 
And I loved it, dude. I love the fact that basically they went that far to, you know, look at the, look at the, what was set before they have to actually make sure that the style maintains some continuity. You can't go crazy. No, no. They also did the same thing with Uhura's uniform. Apparently that one was also the one that we saw in the future. It was also based on Uhura's specific uniform she wore from the original series. From the original series. But they couldn't give, apparently, the, the archives or the, I don't know, the treasure trove where they keep all these old uniforms. They could not give them the original Uhura because apparently that uniform is worth a lot of money. That, oh, yeah. And because of that, they can't just give that one out. <laughs> it, it, it has too much value. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, some of those props are worth millions. Well, especially since she died. I'm sure that Mm -hmm. also brings the value up even more. All right. So the episode was directed by Chris Fisher and written by Henry Alonzo Myers and the co-showrunner Akiva Goldsman. So we have made it to the end of the first season. And I will say that I appreciate what this team of writers has done with this show. Absolutely. Yeah. They've managed to give this new series its own distinct feel while playing within a very small sandbox. That's something we talk about a lot in these shows and not just playing in this small sandbox, but also playing tribute to what came before and honoring what came before. Even though there are a lot of fans out there who would probably disagree with that saying they disrespect season one of strange new worlds is evidence that, not only are they paying respect, but they care. They care. They, exactly. They care about what they're doing. And when you look at Strange New World season one, this is more this this is more akin to the original Star Trek series, which shows you that the production team behind Strange New Worlds knows what they were doing. They they knew for a fact, yeah, a lot of people are gonna be worried, oh, they're gonna be bringing in these legacy characters, they're gonna ruin them. No, we're going to take care of them. We're gonna make their legacies still matter. And I think that's what ultimately with this episode, I felt was one of the strongest points is because the writers behind Strange New Worlds wanted to emphasize we, they're not taking away anything from the past. They're simply adding to it. They're adding the mythos. They're adding the depth to it. They're making it feel more grand. I mean, the by the end of this episode if you cannot look at the character of say spock and come to realize just how important that character is now i mean when you think of it as a as a star trek fan the character of spock has been with the franchise since the very beginning he started even in the pilot he went to the TOS. He showed up in TNG and showed his importance during that time. It was some of the most important storylines. The movies speak for themselves. That character, his legacy and his overall story is so intrinsically tied to Star Trek that in one episode, Strange New Worlds, the writers basically said, we're going to double down on it and, say, and tell the fan base, hey, we understand that this character is important, but here's why. And they're doing this in a way that a lot of prequels and sequels are usually either a unable to because they lack the talent or they're unwilling to do. 
Yes. It's more like that, I feel. Meaning they're, they're not relying on nostalgia to craft these episodes or create the stories that are pertaining to Spock and his legacy of things to come. They're not just using, hey, you remember when Spock did this? Yes. In episode whatever of season two of the original series? They're not relying on nostalgia to craft these episodes. In fact, what they're doing is they're finding, they're using established canon. That's probably a better way of saying that. They are using established canon and either working parallel with it or finding a creative means to work around it. And an example of them working around being creative and working around specific issues of canon is what we saw in this episode mm-hmm. with the introduction of Kirk. We all know Pike and Kirk never met. Yes. But the way they went about it in this episode, they creatively found a loophole to make certain story aspects work. Um, they are using that established canon. In a lot of ways, the series is able to bring, and this is something you were touching on a moment ago, greater meaning to our legacy characters. Yes. And not, again, just using nostalgia. Remember when they did this? No, what they're actually doing is working on developing stories and fleshing out these characters further. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spock, Uhura, Chapel, I'd probably consider them the legacy characters. And then the smaller ones, I suppose we can say, are also legacy characters, just not as relevant as those three mentioned. They have now been given bigger roles like Ike and Una. Yes. And if you think about it, especially with Pike's story, Pike's story from just simply the pilot is someone who is trapped within his own body. And and it's a tragic story of a person that essentially is doomed to a miserable existence. Right. But by the end, you want them to have a happy ending. So all of a sudden he finds his way out of that predicament. And it was a very simple story, but essentially, essentially in strange new worlds, they took that simple story and added so much depth to it because now we understand we, we feel that plight even more for Pike. And then the thing I love about the most in this episode that ties to this is that moment between Pike and Spock when Spock says, I owe you a debt of gratitude for something I don't know about. But the implications of that is that it shows the importance of the past Trek episode of the menagerie. And also, David, just like you were saying before this as well about Spock and his story, they're taking these smaller legacy characters like Pike and Una and using them to strength our, without a doubt, legacy characters characters. like Spock because of a scene like that, which we'll break down in a moment here. Mm -hmm. But after the season finale, it's clear that the writers and producers are carefully curating Spock's origin story. We saw this in Discovery Season 2 and Discovery Season 3 when we find out that Spock's life work, life's work post-Starfleet had a massive impact on Vulcan and Romulan relations and by default with the Federation. And this is what the Berman Pillar era did with Spock as well in TNG which is where his affinity and or resolve to bring peace between the biological cousin species together, being Romulan and Vulcans. And that last part has been an interesting aspect of Trek for years, starting with the episode 
uh, from the original series, Balance of Terror, which they used as a backdrop for this season finale here, where they reveal through an intercepted transmission, like we saw in this episode, that Romulans look like Vulcans. And with that connection, we learned of the Vulcans' reason behind the purging of emotions, as, which is another aspect that is interwoven into the final season of Star Trek Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So look at what they're doing with Spock's story. They are taking elements that have been a part of Star Trek canon for decades, and they're connecting the dots and showing this big, massive impact that Spock has had on the entire landscape of the universe. Yeah. I mean, going all the way thousands, you know, a thousand years into the future And his legacy is still there because of the Romulan Vulcan, I guess, peace. They have returned back to their roots. Mm -hmm. I I love what they're doing. And if you remember at some point during our discussion for Strange New Worlds, I had mentioned that one of my all-time favorite episodes of the original series was season one, episode 14, Balance of Terror. Yeah. And I'd say it's probably most likely on my top five episodes. It's an excellent script and it's probably one of the best directed episodes of all time Uh, directed. Well, I should say best directed episodes of all time within the original series. Yes. It was directed by Vincent uh, Mickey, Mick Avidi. I want to say is how you pronounce his name. There's the attention to detail. You have nuanced performances from William Shatner and Mark Leonard, who also plays Sarek, by the way, but he was the Romulan commander. He was the Romulan commander. Yeah. And it has that whole naval combat element that I've spoken about a lot this season. The reason this is even relevant is because this is also the setting and backdrop for the season finale of Strange New Worlds, where they use a lot of those similarities to create a consistency and also show the fate of Pike and how it cannot be changed. Or should not. It should should not not be be changed. changed. Yes, that's a better way of saying it. Should not be changed. And also... Placing the emphasis, the importance on our legacy character, which is Spock. Dude, I love the fact that essentially, if you were to watch Balance of Terror and this episode back to back, you would see like a mirror mirror episode, except the fact that the Enterprise is captained by Captain Kirk in the original, and the Enterprise at this point is captained by Pike. And that... And, I love the fact that it would be really easy to make that just the reason why it's so different. But then they dived into why is it different? Here's the philosophy of Pike versus the philosophy of Captain Kirk. And you know what was amazing? They never said one was better than the other. It was just the fact that Pike's mentality for this particular scenario would not work out well. Yep. And David, I gl- I'm glad you brought that up because that was a big point for me because this is where you can see the cleverness of the writers, of the writers and yeah. producers because you, you, you're taking that episode as a moment of importance, the, the balance of terror. It's a catalyst of sorts, a moment where the decision of a single captain will change the entire course of the future and secure the legacy of that future as well as, in this case, Bach. And much of the strength of the second season of Picard, I want to connect some dots here, was the underlying importance placed on Picard. We said that during our Picard discussion. The idea that we have this causal loop that asserts that Picard's actions in the past is what secures the future. 
Essentially, the future cannot be without the interference of the past. And it all relied on Picard's actions, thereby making Picard a very important, pivotal character in the grand cosmos, which I think is fascinating. And they did this with Kirk and Spock in this episode. This places a significant amount, keeping with Picard for a second, and relevance on the TNG legacy character without and without him, the future that everyone knows wouldn't be. It's what J.J. did uh, to a smaller degree with the 2009 Star Trek reboot, placing the importance of the future on the relationship. That was his angle mm-hmm. on the relationship between Kirk and Spock, that they needed each other. They needed to rely on each other. And similar, similarly, to bring it back to Strange New Worlds, they put the relevance of the entire universe, when you think about this, on the backs of Kirk Spock. And that's the thing that that's an even more of an example of why I feel the strange new worlds writing room is one of the strongest I've seen in a very long time. It's the level of respect, the level of respect, but also the ability to do that type of storytelling within one episode. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rail against Picard because you are exactly right. The entire season two of Picard was about establishing the importance of his legacy. It took them the whole season, a whole season to do that. Strange New Worlds looked at that and said, we're going to take the same concept in one episode and show you how it's done. And that's not taking away from Picard's storyline because I think that's that concept in Star Trek about uh, or star, the, that concept in Star Trek that's really important is talking about legacy. It's something that I've always felt Picard should have trailed on, but they've only tiptoed in it. Strange New Worlds are saying, no, this is about legacy. This is about the importance of all these characters and how destiny is important. Fate is important. It's not about, you know, like, let's, we'll dodge this to change this point in the in the timeline and basically make it seem simple i never realized until this episode of star trek as well as the picard second season that the universe of star trek is fundamentally based on determinism determinism yeah i know there may be some people saying no 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 they have free will that's not my point determinism or i guess you can call it soft determinism is a philosophical outlook based on how you view the universe mm-hmm. and how everything is cause and effect and how one thing matters for the next. Yes. And I'm not saying they don't have free will. Everyone has free will uh, to, to some degree. If you're presented, for example, in this episode, taken from the original series, Balance of Terror, and you're presented with, hey, do we go after the Romulan ship that just got done attacking that starbase, or do we hold back and weigh the pros and cons? Well, those are your options based on what this soft deterministic universe had offered you. You have two choices. And out of those two choices, one of them is obviously the one that will destroy the desired destiny of the universe. Exactly. It's, it, it's one of the points like in Picard season two that I really enjoyed too, which was when Picard has the key from the wall and then you hear Q's voice and he basically says, so you're going to put the key back. Or are you going to let that you're going to let that Picard meet his destiny essentially? Mm-hmm. I'm okay with having there's some 
it depends on the property. There are some TV shows that I don't like the idea of determinism. Determinism. But when you're dealing with legacies like these characters that have been around for 50 years, I think our, our natural love that comes with watching these characters for, for years and years and years, we want them to be important. Mm-hmm. And if they are important, it means there's got to be some deterministic qualities. Exactly. It's the thing that I liked about the Star Trek 2009 JJ reboot as well. They, they placed the importance on, of the universe on the backs of two characters that, hey, you know what? Things didn't happen the way they should be, but they're going to slowly correct themselves because that's yes. the natural order. That's the natural order of things. And that's, that's the type of determinism I can get behind. Yeah. Where it's like, we can delay the inevitable, but essentially the timeline will correct itself. Nature, <laughs> to, to steal a phrase from Jurassic Park, nature will find a way. And like... There's something Listen, to be said Anson about Kim that. Listen, Kim found a way with seven and nine. So, I mean, it's true. <laughs> That's his destiny. Oh, man. <laughs> Listen, if that was my destiny to have one night with seven, so be it. So <laughs> you're like, oh, oh, well, okay. I can live with this. No, no, Mike, we could change the timeline. You were captain of a ship and you said, hey, you know what? You, it's not, it was never in your destiny to have relations with seven and nine. If you do this, the majority of your crew will die. <laughs> Like, well, I just take a page from William Shatner and Star Trek six. Let them die. Let them die. <laughs> All of a sudden you just look at your crew and go, you know, we will enjoy the time that we have we together. We, we had, had a good run. We had a good run. See you later. Run. <laughs> yeah. So bringing it back to the relevance aspect. Well, actually we are still talking about that, yeah. but the, the idea of putting the, the emphasis and the importance of the universe on the backs of Kirk and Spock, this aspect of the episode was at the forefront and it was told in an expertly crafted narrative that placed importance also on Pike and the part he must play in order to secure the future and essentially protect Spock and keep him on his current path because as Pike learns Spock's life is almost like fate's thread yeah weaving centuries of historical relevance together and i think this is the genius thing about pike's story because remember we know pike's end game we know he gets a happy ending in the end he ends up on the planet fine a happy ending well you know psychically he has a happy <laughs> oh, okay ending. okay but he gets he gets to have you know the quote-unquote gold star at the end of the right. day but it's about really giving his journey some more substance and, and meaning and meaning because purpose. that's the thing I've been struggling with and not because it's been bad, but for the first season, what we've been given works fine. But as you move forward, how do you not start feeling a little nihilistic for uh Pike? Cause it starts off as existential, right? Pike feels like he has no purpose. He doesn't know what to do. He knows his fate and much of the season for him, his characterization has been guided under a type of existentialism. But at some point, when you realize you can't change your future because this, this, and this is going to happen, that existentialism is going to turn into nihilism. Nihilism. So how do you not go in that direction? Well, you find a new purpose. And if his purpose is to secure Spock's future, that's an awesome story. Well, not even Spock's future. Imagine because, if that becomes his purpose. His yeah. purpose is to make sure Spock becomes who he must be. Yeah. The, the big thing, too, is, is kind of like, I'm beginning to think that 
Pike's journey is to secure Star Trek history by making sure this original, the original crew of the Enterprise mm-hmm. basically maintains their task. Yep. And it, it, it was hilarious because at first I was just going to say, oh, his, his, his journey is going to just be with Spock. But then I started thinking about it afterwards, especially when you get to that final scene where he's looking at Captain Kirk's file. Or correction, it's not Captain yet. Right. Um, but you lo- he's looking at James Kirk's file. I think he realizes that he realizes, both these people are important. He realizes that Kirk and Spock are important to the Enterprise. He probably also understands Uhura is important to this Enterprise. So Pike, I think his journey is making sure all the parts of the Enterprise find their way on the ship. And I think that that's a cool story because, like, the origin story of the the Enterprise crew was never really de- um, really detailed. We just know that Kirk ended up captain of the Enterprise, and it worked for that show. And it for worked that for time. the show. Yeah. But nowadays, it's like now that we're taking a glimpse into the 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 history of the Enterprise crew, mm-hmm. we want to know. Well, if Spock's already on the ship, why isn't Kirk out actually on the ship yet? Is he just is he just some cadet still? He's lieutenant, and, right? Uh, yeah, and, or is he a lieutenant? That's what we're thinking. Yeah. Well, how does he get onto the ship? How, we already know that Uhura's there and Spock's there. Well, how does like a ca- character like Captain or James Kirk show up on the ship, especially with his brother there? Yeah, <laughs> because we know that his brother doesn't. Uh, him and his brother don't see each other for a very long time. So. You're talking about Kirk, so let's jump into this a bit here. That's something that I really like that they did by bringing Kirk and Spock, or I should say Kirk and Pike together, essentially. They managed to draw distinctions between Pike and other Star Trek characters. This is why new Kirk works so well in the story, and and we will get into that in a second. I want to break down his portrayal, or I should say Paul Wesley's portrayal of Kirk. But sticking with Pike here for a few more minutes, that distinction was needed. As I had said or alluded to, Pike now has a part to play. It might not be the part he wants to play, but it is his part. It's his part. And and when old Pike spoke to young Pike and said that we all hope that our lives are important to the future, and it is, but some are more important to the very shaping of the future. I mean, yes, that's got to be a gut punch that, hey, your life's not that important. You got to die. You have to die (laughs) in order for this to happen. You know, but I do like that they stress Spock is important. Every time we change the path, I believe this is what he said, he dies. Yes. And he can't die because he's got things to do. And that was kind of sad for Pike, but it was clear that Spock's life was the one of pure relevance. And this is an interesting character study when you really start to dissect what they're doing, because you have a character that was facing, as I said, a type of existential crisis, not sure what the meaning of life is when you are destined. I mean, how do you know what the meaning of your life is when you are destined to face certain destruction, no matter what you do. I mean, early on, Pike was able to hold on to meaning by making sure that he saves everyone that was supposed to die. Yes. But now that meaning is no longer possible. He knows that if he messes with the future, everything that was supposed to be will not be. And he and Spock will swap fates. And now perhaps moving to season two, that is how he will find his purpose or his meaning to his life. Essentially making sure he prepares Spock what he must achieve based on what old Pike had told him that he, there are things that he must do. 
the closing scene between Pike and Spock. And I believe you mentioned this at the top of the show. You know, that he's important to him. Yes. It was not only heart touching, but it was extremely relevant or I guess I suppose you can say helpful because it gives the audience a better look into why Spock risked it all in the original series episode, the menagerie. Yes. Where I believe he risked even being put to death put to for death. treason and mutiny when he stole the enterprise so they can save Pike from a life of misery by taking him to the forbidden planet. Uh, Talos four. Yes. So it brings more credibility to the menagerie episode where Spock obviously cares deeply for Pike. And we never quite know why, other than the fact that he has a type of honor and respect for his former captain. Well, especially in that scene when he does the mind meld with Pike and he comes to realize this is the weight that Pike's been carrying. And yes, it, it is. You could say that basically, well, that was a different timeline because that was in the future. He, that was a way that, Pike had to make that Spock believe, but in a weird sort of way, Spock by the end of it seems to actually be just as affected by the, the quote unquote time change. So he knows of Pike's fate. Everyone on that ship knows of Pike's fate at this point, it seems. And, and the fact that Spock knows that he could have, you know, Pike could have shrugged his shoulders, thrown caution to the wind and say, fuck it. I want to live. I don't care if we're at war. I'm alive. But instead, he does not put himself above the universe and he doesn't put himself above his friend Spock. And that's got to obviously reach Spock or connect with Spock at some emotional level. But, but don't you think that this strengthens the Menagerie episode? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's, 100%. It's, it's really good what they did. And that's why I keep saying that, that this shows this should show us as an audience that the writers know what they're doing and they have respect because they are doing what every other writer has done since Roddenberry was no longer involved, starting with TNG mm -hmm. by bringing Spock to the forefront and positioning him in such a way that it shows us all that he's extremely important, that he has a purpose and an agenda that's why I liked what they did in Discovery, because they, they solidified his legacy. And this is more of that. Well, not only that, it's also the importance. I think what was really nice by the end of this episode, I felt that the relationship between Spock and Pike is different from Spock and Kirk now, because in a lot of ways, Pike is kind of like Spock's mentor. He, especially when he refers to him as, he always refers to him as my captain. Thank you, Captain. And there's a difference between the relationship of basically like a captain and, and their, their crew. And then between Kirk and, Spock, Kirk were and Spock were friends. Yeah. They're best friends. They're family. But like to Spock, it, in a lot of ways, Pike got elevated into being a father figure to Spock. Because as a mentor now, at the very least as a mentor, because now, and now when you think about like what the next season might bring, Pike essentially is going to try to make sure Spock maintains that level, that legacy of greatness because he knows that Spock can be this great human being. And he, in a lot of ways, isn't that what a lot of parents do? We look at our, we look at our quote unquote child and we say, 
there's great things in his future. I'm going to make sure it happens. And essentially that's what's, that's what the feeling I got when Pike started looking at Spock and basically saying, I have to make sure that this man meets his end game. He meets the end goal, which is this great legacy that we are being alluded to that Spock is important to the galaxy. Yeah. So let's bring it to Kirk now a little bit more. I mentioned a few moments ago that this episode served as a bit of a character study on Pike because it, it worked to distinguish Pike as a captain. Yes. And they did that by bringing Kirk into the episode. I was not expecting this at the, I think me and you were like talking like Kirk would have, was not going to be in a full fledged episode. We thought that by the end of this season, you'd get like this little teaser of, Oh, hello. Here's James D Kirk. Yeah. Like an ending, like an ending. Yeah. Yeah. But I was really surprised. They dealt headlong into giving us an episode complete with captain Kirk. I loved what they did with it because it showed Kirk's method of commanding, which always is funny to me. Oh, yeah. The idea that he doesn't believe in no-win situations. There's an ego. There's a little bit of William Shatner in the making of Kirk. There's, oh, easily. There, there's an ego there. You know, he doesn't believe in no-win situations. And obviously <laughs> that type of mentality requires a level of risk-taking, which is something something that Kirk has always been willing to do. Whereas Pike captains under committee many yes. times and takes his time to weigh his proposed actions. That's a lot like what Picard does as well. He would go to the room and talk to everyone to decide things as a group. Many times Picard would would make his own decisions, whereas Pike, starting with Discovery, he really values, not to say the other captains didn't value what the crew can add, but he really is intent on listening to what they say. Yes. And many times he will acquiesce to them. Which, that's a captain style. That's a leadership quality that works in many situations. Yeah, it goes with his type of captaining style, which is based on peaceful negotiation and mutual respect. It's a little bit of diplomacy there with his crew, yes. right? Yeah, it's, it's almost like a precursor to Picard. Picard's the perfect, you know, Picard is considered the captain who's the perfect diplomat. I now look at Pike and say, this is the precursor. This is, this is the beginning. This is who it goes to like what, uh, in discovery, why they uh, remember what the Admiral told Pike, why he got sent out all that way far away during the war was because he's the best of us. He's the, he's the precursor of who we should be. And in a lot of ways I thought about that and going, yeah, that's right. That is why, his captain style is so different from Kirk's because he doesn't have that ego. He doesn't have that, you know, gunslinger mentality where I'm going to ride in on horses and, you know, guns are blazing. That's what captain Kirk would do. Yeah. Yes, he does do that. But also there's some deep strategy to Kirk. Oh, absolutely. Dude. And it's always based <laughs> in lies. It's I always go back to Star Trek too. how he fooled Khan into thinking that they were more damaged than that. The Enterprise and he's just was reading his glasses and he's just adjusting his glasses the whole time. Yeah. I mean, he played Khan like a fiddle. That's classic Kirk. He creates a farce, a lie. Look at my ship. <laughs> Everything's destroyed. <laughs> Kirk's plans are so cowboy in nature. Yes. He does cowboy antics. He, his gambling, you know, his farces. And that's why the thing with the mining ships made yes. me fucking laugh out loud that he's bluffing. 
Oh, the mining ship was it's actually classic Kirk. classic Kirk. The other one that I, that I saw when I went through my rewatch was like, wait a minute. Captain Kirk came up with his own maneuver, called it the <laughs> Tiberius maneuver. And I'm like, going, we're supposed to think that Captain Kirk only was a captain for a very short period of time. Yet this guy comes up with his own goddamn maneuver with his own ship. <laughs> and, Listen, don't, why, why wait? And, as soon as you're in that chair, create a maneuver of your own. And it was like so hilarious. As soon as, as soon as like the Romulans shoot at him, what does he say? Tiberius maneuver, such and such. And they do like this totally naval submarine maneuver that goes where the ship dives down, goes, goes upside down because, Hey, that's captain Kirk. Yeah, It was <laughs> good. It was good. I like, I liked it. It's, I liked it quite a bit. It's those idioms. It's those, you know, portrayals that gets a character, right? Because like going back to like what you want to talk about, about like the portrayal of captain Kirk, this was not like a, it, they made sure that when uh, I forgot the actor's name, off the bat, what was the actor's name that uh, plays Kirk? Uh, Paul Wesley. Paul Wesley. They made sure Paul Wesley was not playing William Shatner. Yeah. He, he had to play the Captain Kirk character. Well, yeah. And, and listen, that's there's good things to that and there's bad things to that. For example, first, I will admit I'm a fan of Paul Wesley. So there may be some bias there. I think he has an interesting subtleness to his performances and everything that I've watched of his. He, he did capture the casualness of Kirk though, because he is subtle in his performances. I felt like he was able to capture the nuances of Kirk to a, to a degree in a way that reflected certain mannerisms or body language. Now he didn't have the gestures. He didn't have that Shakespearean angle going but the way he sat, little simple things, little the, simple the thing. way he sat in his chair and the way he walked. For example, there was a scene where he was speaking to Pike and their body language was so different. Pike was sitting upright. Kirk was more slouched back and looked really comfortable. Which I thought was a good way to, to create that, uh, that difference between the captains, but also give us a little bit of that classic Kirk. I can't describe how he walks there is a, a bravado to the way he walks yeah he saunters way, in yes he saunters in and the way he sits the way he sits on his captain chair the way he he dictates orders and i feel like uh, paul wesley did in fact capture that yeah and kirk's characterization characterization was also on point so overall the writers and wesley did fine it was adequate mm -hmm. that being said i I'm looking forward to seeing Paul Wesley grow in the role. Yes. We know he's going to be a big part of season three. I'm not for parodies. And that's, that's the, I'm going to explain that here. Cause that's my biggest problem with certain actors that are cast in legacy type of roles. I'm not for parodies, but there should be a few more Shatnerisms. That's yeah. my only critique of Paul Wesley's performance. There needs to be a little bit of a Shakespearean flair. Chris Pine's Kirk brought, about, yeah. brought that into his performance a bit and managed to make the role his own, but also keep those key aspects at times. Now, when I say parody, what I mean is parody versus capturing the essence. Do we really want to see an actor be cast as Kirk and play into it like Jim Carrey's performance in Ace Ventura. 
Exactly, no. Now, arguably, Ace Ventura has an amazing William Shatner, but that's a satirical parody version of it. And he hits on all those key mannerisms and the way he enunciates words. Do we really want that in TV show? No. It would feel forced and contrived. Mm -hmm. And a good comparison, I'm going to cross streams here. We're going to bring in uh, Solo, the Star Wars spinoff film. With Alden Einreich? Alden Einreich, I felt, played Han Solo great because he captured the essence of Solo. And unpopular opinion here, Donald Glover did not do a great job as Lando Carizian. And the reason why is because he turned it into a parody. Yes. He was trying to be Billy D. Williams so much. It turned into a joke. That it distracted me. Because all I saw was Billy D. Williams, not a character who was supposed to be Landell Calrissian, not Billy D. Williams. And his love for capes. <laughs> right. There was too much parody to his performance. Now, Donald Glover is a good actor, and he's probably played it the way the directors told him to. But with Star Trek, can you imagine if Paul Wesley decided to throw in all the, the antics of William Shatner? Exactly. It would, be, it would be fucking it'd, stupid. It'd be stupid. I mean, it's like, I like the fact that you brought up Chris Pine because Pine, I thought in the beginning of the movie, we saw the growth of Kirk as a character. When you get to the very end, that's when he ramps up the Shatnerism. Mm-hmm. And, you and, know? and under certain moments of duress, when he's uh, dictating orders, he'll, he'll fling his arm a bit and fling do those classic Captain Kirk moments. And the, I feel like Paul Wesley will get there eventually. But I'm hoping so. This is his first go round. It's going to take some time to get into that, that character there. And he did have the, the walk. He had the mannerisms when it came to sitting. And I, versus, think the, I think the closest moment you probably have is the, the actual, I think it's both of our favorite moments of his, which is the, Armada, uh, the fake Armada situation. Because essentially when I saw that, I think about it now, that is like, when Chris Pine had to face the test in the movie and he's eating an apple and he's just shooting at the screen. <laughs> and, I love that part. And the Armada secret. Yeah, yeah. The Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. And that scene is very similar to the Armada where basically, you know, Kirk shows up and he looks at Pike and he says, well, Hope this helps. Yeah, Paul Wesley had that little smirk wink yeah, wink. Yeah, that smirk he, wink he wink. He had that, I'm so proud of myself right now that yes. I thought about this. So he did bring it. He did bring it. But it was subtle because that's Paul Wesley's style. He's more mm-hmm. of a subtle actor. So there were good moments that I think reflected a, a decent Kirk portrayal. However, moving to season three, he does need to play into it a bit more. Not, not to the point where it becomes parody, but, but definitely play with that bravado a bit more. I think it's going to be interesting to see his portrayal of Kirk alongside Ethan Peck Spock, because that's going to be the big, that's going to be the litmus test. I guess you could say for the entire thing. Can they do a legitimate portrayal of the characters or is it going to be a parody? I was giddy when they met each other. When, um, <laughs> yeah, same here. when Kirk first hailed them and he's all Lieutenant, he's all Spock. And I just like, oh, I love that. I just love this to get to see that, even though that never happens now, because that's a future that will never <laughs> be. It was still fun to see the moment they met. And the thing that still cracks me up is like in this universe, Kirk still ends up being a captain before Spock. Of course. Which is hilarious. You can't let a good, you can't, uh, you can't let a good man down. I mean, come on. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He doesn't get the Enterprise. Oh, but he's going to get that captainship. I love it. 
Yeah, so overall, I didn't have any complaints. Most people seemed to be really happy with Paul Wesley. There was a few people that sent us some messages saying, hey, I, I know you guys haven't got there yet, but you know, I was disappointed in Paul Wesley's performance as Kirk. And I didn't respond because I was going to save it for the show. I'm like, what do you want? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm not sure what you want. Like, do you want him to be William Shatner? Because that would be weird. It'd be weird. And that's the ultimate thing is like, until when it comes to the criticism of, of his performance, I want to know right up front, if you do not like his performance, why? Well, it, if you wanted to, it to be more like William Shatner, are you sure? Because then it would be turn into almost a parody. Yeah, and even William Shatner, let me just stress this, even William Shatner wasn't William Shatner in the movies. Like, he was more like that, you know, the Shatnerisms, if you will, in the original series. That's yes. where he really played into it because it was also the time, the time in television history where you performed in that manner. It was more stage-driven. Yeah. Later in the movies, there are those moments because William Shatner, that's just him. <laughs> how he yes. how he talks and how he asserts certain things but it also wasn't nearly as prevalent as the original series so that being said i feel like what they gave to us with paul wesley was a good start yeah and that's how i see it too is it's a good start we can't judge paul wesley yet till we actually have a full-fledged performance and establish characteristics of Captain James T. Kirk. We only got teases of it. And then honestly, I like the teases we got. I mean, I love the, the Armada sequence was funny because I'm like, oh yeah, that's a captain. Every single time Paul Wesley showed up, I, I left that scene basically going, yeah, that's what Kirk would do. Yeah. That was, that was a Kirk. All I got to say is that we have three Kirks now and now we need to make sure we get a scene like the classic Spider-Man cartoon. All pointing <laughs> the pointing at each at other. Each other. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so stupid, but amazing <laughs> at the same time. Oh, can someone do this at a Star Trek convention? Can someone like pose all of them together, please? <laughs> that would be so amazing. Can you imagine if we had Chris Pine, William Shatner, and Paul, Paul Wesley, Wesley at a convention? At a convention. I would <laughs> be there. I haven't been to a Star Trek convention since I was a teenager, but I will be there. It would be amazing. It'd be absolutely amazing. All right. So let's talk about Una. This was the big cliffhanger of the season, as we saw. She got arrested due to the anti-genetic modification directive. Apparently, Starfleet found out she was Illyrian. Yeah, Illyrian. Illyrian. So is, is this is this what has? I, I suppose this poses a question, right? Is this what had always happened to her? You would expect because, like, they have to explain why Una was, was taken off the Enterprise. He was gone. She was gone. Never to be seen again since the pilot episode. Yes. So you have to come up with a reason or a reason. You have to come up. <laughs> you have to come up with a, a valid reason why that character disappeared. Obviously. Thank God they didn't go down the route that, Oh, we'll just kill her off because that just, that that'd be no. terrible. No. And they didn't just basically just say, Oh, she got moved to another ship. Let's make it something more narratively based. And when, when the officer comes on deck and says that you're under arrest for, uh, what was it, genetic modification uh, yeah, laws? She, yeah, she broke the anti-genetic modification directive. I'm like going, 
they're they at least made a callback to one of their past episodes, so something actually mattered. <laughs> and that's where again I give a lot of props to the writing. They do not waste any any time. They don't waste an idea. They manage to get a lot done in a fifty five minute episode. Oh yeah. And and I'm sorry, that ending still gave me chills because like I wasn't expecting the shot of Pike literally looking down the lens and saying, This is not over yet. And then all of a sudden, blackout. And I just like I alluded uh, alluded to or said uh, prior to the show, I was expecting to hear the t- the phrase to be continued. I would be okay with that. That would have been awesome. Okay, Dave. So final thoughts. I love this episode. That's my final thoughts. I thought it was really good. <laughs> I, I don't understand how there must be some miserable people out there who just can't enjoy anything. I w- I'm glad I'm not like that, Dave. I'm glad I can look past <laughs> my own fan wants and sit down and enjoy something that's written very well. Yeah. So I'm going to get this episode. Are you ready, Dave? Okay. A 99%. <laughs> which I believe is the highest rating I've given any episode of Star Trek during the Kurtzman era. It is. It is. And I'm only going to one up you with that one. Oh. Because yes, I throw it around a lot, but to anyone arguing with me that it doesn't deserve a hundred, tell me where this episode is not perfect. Tell me where it is. Tell me the problem of this episode. You can't say it's Paul Wesley's performance. We've already said that it's actually a very well done beginning to the establishing right. characteristic of Kirk. And also it doesn't make it a bad episode. It, let's say you don't like him. Let's yeah. say you don't. Okay. You don't like you don't a performance. Like it doesn't performance. mean the episode's poorly written or executed. Did they establish the character? Does it feel on par with what we know of Captain Kirk? Exactly. And they did capture the essence of Captain Kirk. Did they, and then uh, on top of that, the story, are you not compelled by Pike's story from the very beginning? of? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Because if you're not, and up to this point, so you mean to tell me you've watched the entire season and Pike's story has not been compelling to you about this guy who has to deal with the knowledge that he's going into that chair, whether he likes it or not. Okay. Oh, come on. He's going to end up in that accident. He does get we to go don't. to that hallucination planet, which, you know, he can dream of any type of sick fantasies. And that's where he gets his happy ending. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but like, and then on top of that, then with all the other characters, did they leave any characters out? No. All the other characters were still important. Mm-hmm. And in the end, when you take a character like Una and make her the focus suddenly, then that adds everything else to all the other characters narrative. Now, not only does Pike have to worry about Spock's future, he has to worry about the safety of his quote unquote, his best friend up to this point, which is Una and his first officer. So what's going to happen now? This is going to, and this is a really, this is how you should set up a Star Trek series from beginning to end. We should actually have a well thought out narrative, which was Pike's really great established characters, which we did. And then you set up for the next season perfectly for a next storyline, which is Una's perfect. So tell me again, why shouldn't this be a hundred? And that's my final thoughts on that. 
Because I'm giving it a hundred. So your final thoughts was to justify your one hundred percent. Yes, I like that. That's what you should do more often. <laughs> That's what I should do. So one hundred percent, which is going to be hard for me to round. So I mean, was it ninety nine point five? There you go. <laughs> okay, David. So let's talk really briefly because we do need to close out the show. Final thoughts on the season as a whole. You want me to go first? Um. Well, well, let me go first because it's pretty quick for me. Okay. It's an excellent first season. I have to think for a second. That's why I got silent. <laughs> I would probably say. Think of the sexiness, Mike. It's sexiness is bad. Without a doubt, David, the best first season of any Star Trek series. Of any of them. Maybe the original series, it's so long ago now that I don't know if we'd even throw. Yeah, you know, we could throw it in there. Throw it in there. Yeah, I'd say it's better. Star Trek, the original series, doesn't fall into the same issues that Next Generation did, Deep Space Nine did, Voyager did, as well as Discovery, where they kind of struggle for those first two or three seasons. The original series was kind of hit at home runs from the very beginning. So, yeah, I'm going to remove them from that comment. Looking at just everything post the original series, this is the strongest first season of any of those Star Trek series, without a doubt. Yes. There aren't those issues where you're like, okay, I'm not quite sure what they're doing here. There was no inconsistencies. Everything was pretty much uh, connected thematically. The, the character arcs all mattered. The only thing I can say, more episodes would work better with an episodic format like this. When you're dealing with a serial, anywhere between six to 12 episodes are, are pretty fucking good. Because you're telling one cohesive story all across the board, right? Yes. But when you're dealing with episodic format, it feels weird just being 10. I feel like they could add another five or even eight episodes to bolster the overall impact of the season. Because even though they managed to do a lot in 10 episodes, I feel like they could have done much more. If yeah. they had a few more episodes there to play with, they could have, you know, put the, um, they could have finessed, you know, Uhura's story a bit, a little bit more. A little more nuance. Yeah, they could have focused on other characters a little bit more as well, bringing out certain aspects that we were all drawn to. But because they're limited to 10 episodes, we're not able to get so that's my only i don't want to call it a complaint but perhaps my something i would like to see change in the in the future seasons no that's fair that's that's a fair point because like the question becomes is kind of like okay when is too when is it too much then because if you give a series to too many episodes well how many episodes was tng and d space nine 20 plus i'm trying to remember 20 plus episodes yeah 20 plus episodes but if you went back to that format then yeah i mean like you can easily have added eight to ten episodes to this and maybe if they were to increase more episodes maybe it would hurt the quality overall because they're having to stretch that budget out a bit or do you think they might might have been worried about like streaming audiences more than anything else like they streaming want, audiences. they want <laughs> they want a, a series that will fit for a streaming audience where streaming is <laughs> is uh, it there's an expiration date on streaming so i don't really care about mm. them and i and me i guess i'm a streaming 
audience as well. I'm saying you can, you can't really write for streaming. You have to write based on how television has been written since the dawn of time. So I don't think that matters. Yeah. Unless I'm not, I'm, maybe I'm not understanding your question. Well, the thing is, is like, I'm trying to think of like, could a audience say like a Netflix audience like this be comfortable with a series that is 20 episodes long and just binge mm. the whole thing? Well, could, as, that, could that be the reason why they say, okay, let's, let's make it 10. It's budget reasons, Dave, because yeah, because look at Deep space nine and Voyager and enterprise that have found exactly new, that's why new relevance wondering. within pop culture. People have, who didn't give it a chance, even younger people Remember the documentary mm-hmm. for deep space nine and the cast was completely shocked. How many Netflix viewers you know, reached out to them and say, I've never watched this show. And now that it's on Netflix, I have, I've watched it and I have fallen in love with this show. And because I have true. fallen in love with D space nine, I've gone back and watched other star Trek shows. So obviously Netflix fans or Netflix viewers and streaming viewers who like to binge. I, I don't think more episodes would be a problem. In fact, isn't that what people want more episodes? That is true. That is true. So, I mean, like, if these writers are able to churn out 10 great episodes, then I'm not going to complain, but I also think they have the skill to give us another five or six episodes and it would feel just fine. Yeah. They can give us more like they can give us some to be continued. They can give us some, a few, some two parters there. They're really, if they were to do a two or three part event, it would take up a quarter of the season. That's true. There isn't room for those cool triple parters. Know the classic Cardassian Dominion War, where we'd have three or four episodes in a row dealing with Cisco on the Defiant, chasing down whatever, or Picard in the Borg. There you go, yeah. Or Janeway and Seven O Nine, Seven O Nine versus the Borg when they were first introduced into what season four or season three, whichever season it was that Jerry Ryan joined the cast. There really isn't time or an ability to do that when you're dealing with ten episodes. And I would like to see that. What if we had a cyborg, you know, storyline, which that's something I do want to see return next. That has to return. That next has season. to return. That you don't set something up like that and not <laughs> yes. go back to it. Right. Oh, absolutely. Because like that was a character I've been waiting for them to go back to, but he hasn't shown up since like what? Season two or, or season two of discovery. Who? Oh no, that was Cybok. I thought you were talking Who about, you talking about? Was Cybok in Discovery? No, no, no. I thought you were talking about Sarek. Spock's no, we, we won't see Sarek again unless they find some clever way to bring him in. Because if yeah. you remember, in the original series, Spock had told, I want to say it was Kirk or McCoy, that he hadn't seen his father his for father over 10 for years. 10 years? Yeah, that is true. So, I mean, like, I thought you were talking about Sarek. Cybok, yeah, we. Come on, Mike. We know he's going to show up. He has to show up now. Yeah. He must relieve us of all our pain. <laughs> of all our pain. Yeah. Okay, Dave. So did you give your final thoughts for the season? No. My, okay. final, my final thoughts for the season is this is the Star Trek series that I think the franchise needed. Like, this is the best season of Star Trek I've ever experienced. I mean, I love parts of Discovery I love Discovery Season 2, and I love Lower Decks, and I love Prodigy, but for me, I've had so much fun watching Strange New Worlds, and going to what you were saying about the episodic format, I think this is the way to go now, because remember, we started 
this whole se- covering the series with the question going to the episodic format, will it work for Star Trek? I'm going to say I'm going to be on the boat, Mike, that basically it is going to work. And I'm 100% on board with this format now because essentially we finally got a Star Trek series that for the first time, even, even with the negative naysayers out there, I have seen nothing but positivity with Strange New Worlds. People be, for the most part. Yeah. For the most part. For the majority of the part. And most of the negativity has been because everyone judges on other iterations of Star Trek because it's the Kurtzman era. I think people are just ready. And yeah, I think this is... if Just ready to get upset about something. Can you imagine if they started the entire Kurtzman era with Strange New Worlds? We would be looking at Star Trek completely differently, I think. Yeah. I think people would be 100% Star Trek at this point if Strange New Worlds was the flagship. Yes and no. I, I think we live in a very divisive time and people want to complain about things and anything that they view as political or identity politics, they want to immediately get mad and complain. How dare you? Even though they don't realize that they have been watching television, television and movies, movies their entire life that had an ideological message interwoven within the subtext to some degree. Yeah. So, okay, Dave, that's fair. I, I can't disagree. I mean, I, I've said my piece about serials versus episodic, episodic. and I'm more, I'm leaning more to serials. serials. It's just modern television yeah. and Deep Space Nine did it very well. Granted, they weren't exclusively a serial, but they were a hybrid, you know, and, and exactly. And I would say even, I would say even Strange New Worlds is a bit of a hybrid. It's a bit of a hybrid. And I think that if they were to delve, like what you said, delve a bit more into the serialized format, now that we have the episodic, or don't that change, might strengthen it. Or don't change a thing and give us more episodes so that we get more bits of the serial in, the, in this hybrid. Because obviously this is a little bit of a serial as well, but... Uh, for the most part, it is governed under the episodic format. Mm-hmm. But if you were to boost up those episodes, you can play around a little bit more Yeah, within that hybrid format. All right. So this does bring us to the end of our discussion. We will be back to discuss Lower Decks Season 3 in a couple weeks. So we will be off the air for the next couple weeks after this show has been posted. We will be putting out some, a few things on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Digital. You'll be able to continue to listen to us for the next couple of weeks. We have a few discussions planned. Patreon.com slash Rayman Digital pledge three or five dollars a month, and you'll gain access to all of our additional content that we do for Star Trek from the holodeck. David, thank you. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.